you would grab a Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 865. Page 865. And for the second week in a row now, we are looking at Jesus' parable of the sower. What a fantastic parable. Could probably spend more time on this parable, which would thrill some of you. For others of you, we've gone one week too long on this parable. Follow along if you would. I'm going to begin reading Luke chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. The word of the Lord says, And when a great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Short prayer together. Father God, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to worthless gain. I pray that you would open up our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. I pray that you would impress upon us once again that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, you, that you would give us greater joy in your word than those apart from you have when their grain and wine abound, as your word says. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. So last week, we looked at this parable and we saw how it clarifies for us the kinds of things that happen when the seed of the word of God meets the soil of different kinds of hearts. And so for example, 
There are times when the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for sinners is met with apathy from the very people who desperately need it. We wonder, why is that? Why are they so apathetic? Why are they so hard-hearted? And this text tells us. There are other times when someone we know professes faith in Christ, and they seem really excited about their faith. But just as quickly as their faith seems to spring up, it seems to be gone in an instant. We wonder, what in the world happened? Jesus tells us what happened. And Jesus also tells us about those who hear the word of God, the gospel, and they seem to follow the Lord. But over time, other things become more important to them, and they never truly mature. Then there's the fourth soil here, the faithful soil. And Jesus tells us to expect some to receive the word and to hold on to the truth of God's word. They hold fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. So looking at this parable helps clarify for us, doesn't it, how the word of God works. And that is incredibly helpful. In fact, we could call this the descriptive interpretation of the parable. It describes what is happening. But, as I mentioned last week, there's another way to interpret this parable, and we could call it the prescriptive interpretation of this parable. So if last week we looked at this parable as a parable of clarification, clarifying for us what happens when the seed of God's word meets various kinds of hearts, this morning we could call this interpretation a parable of caution. A parable of caution. And I think Jesus clearly intends for us to hear this parable as a parable of caution as well. Just look at the last half of verse 8. Jesus calls out to them and says to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this was a common phrase for Jesus. It means listen up, pay attention. Like this is important. This is going to be on the final exam, right? Lean in to this teaching. But Jesus isn't simply referring to auditory hearing. He's referring to the kind of hearing that happens with the mind and with the heart. The kind of listening that true followers of Jesus Christ engage in. We are to listen to the words of Scripture. We're to listen to the Bible as it's preached and taught and explained and read. We're to take heart both to the warnings and cautions and the wonders and promises and glories of the Bible. So this parable of caution begins here with the first caution. The first caution is a caution against a hard heart and the tactics of the devil. So if you're taking notes this morning, our first caution is a caution against a hard heart and the tactics of the devil. Look at verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Then Jesus' interpretation in verse 11 and 12. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, 
Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So this is a caution against a hard heart and the tactics of the devil. Now to be clear, none of us can change our heart without the Lord first changing our heart. And Jeremiah 17.9 says that our heart is deceptive above all things. Jeremiah 13.23 says that just as a leopard can't change its spots, right? no spot removal for a leopard, we cannot change our heart condition. But we also know that one of the incredible promises of the new covenant is that in the new covenant, God's people would have new hearts, that our heart of stone would be taken out, and instead a heart of flesh would be placed within us, a heart that would long after the things of God, that would desire Him. And you might think this morning, well, how do I know which heart I have? A heart of stone or a heart of flesh? One of the ways you can know is by your desires. Do you desire God? Do you desire to know Christ? Do you want more than just the gifts of God? Do you want to know God himself? Do you long to be made right with God? None of those desires are native to the human heart. Rebellion is native to the human heart. A love for ourselves, a love for the darkness, a hatred of God and the light, that's native to the human heart, but not a love for God. So when we truly desire God, when we truly desire the things of God, it's an indication that something's going on inside of us. God is beginning to transform our heart, beginning to soften our heart, beginning to transplant our heart, beginning to stir the affections of our heart, without which we would not desire God. In fact, Jesus says in John 6, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. So desiring God is evidence of drawing. So this first caution then for us is a caution which is important for both non-Christians and for Christians. It's a caution for non-Christians because the call to repent and believe the gospel is a call that goes out to everyone. It's a call for all who hear to repent and believe. And while we know that only those with new hearts will desire to repent and believe, we know that repenting and believing in the word of God, in the son of God, is evidence of a new heart. So friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, or you are not a Christian here this morning, this caution is for you. And I would urge you to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. To embrace Jesus as the Son of God who willingly died, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, on the cross for sin. This is a caution for non-Christians. This is also, though, a caution 
against hard-heartedness and the tactics of the devil for Christians as well. It's a caution to guard our heart from the work of the enemy. Just look at verse 12 again. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, to be clear, the devil is not omnipresent like God is. The devil is not everywhere at once. The devil is limited to being in one place at one time, which means if you are being directly tempted or directly impacted by the devil, you must be incredibly important. Out of all the people in the entire world, the devil is focused on you. Which is why most of the time the work of the enemy isn't carried out directly by the enemy himself, but by his evil systems, by the followers of the enemy, by the distractions and philosophies of a fallen and broken world, and by our own flesh, affected as it is by the fall, a fall which was orchestrated and choreographed by Satan himself. It's important for us to remember that for the Christian, the devil has no ultimate power. Like his days are numbered and so is his temporary kingdom. In fact, the Holy Spirit in us is greater than the spirit of this age, the devil and all those people and all those things that align with him. And yet, this caution still exists for us for us as Christians. And the caution is to be on guard, to be alert, to put on the whole armor of God, which is essentially just the ordinary means of grace. It means we give ourselves to prayer and we give ourselves to the study of Scripture and we give ourselves to repentance and faith and evangelism and church accountability because there is an enemy who is, the Bible says, the God of this world. He holds sway over this world. So we should be on guard, should be cautious, lest we have a hard heart or give way to the tactics of the devil. The second caution for us this morning is a caution against easy believism. Caution against easy believism. Look at verse 6. And some fell along the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Jesus' interpretation in verse 13 says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, fall away. These are men and women who are happy to hear the word of God. They're happy when they hear the gospel, and at first, they seem to grow. At first, God's word seems to give them life. Maybe they seem to believe for a little while. And for a little while, they are excited about Jesus. But before long, trouble comes. In fact, Matthew's account of this same parable records Jesus' additional words when Jesus said that the trouble comes on account of the word of God. Trouble comes because they are aligning themselves with the cause of Christ. And they wither. 
They wither away, Scripture says. This brings up a really important question, and the question is, were these people really converted to begin with? I would argue that the purpose of this parable isn't necessarily to answer that question directly. My opinion, and it's just that, it's just an opinion, because I don't think Scripture here is crystal clear, is to conclude that the people here described on the rocks were not saved to begin with. They may have had an emotional response to the gospel. They may have had a short-lived intellectual faith. Verse 13 says that they believed for a little while, but we know that even the demons believe in Jesus. The problem is, as Jesus describes those among the rocks, they don't have roots, they don't have fruit, and they don't persevere. And roots and fruit and perseverance are all biblical indicators of true life. And they are the perfect illustration of James 2.17 when James says, Faith without works is dead. There's not a functioning to their faith. I think this is also a sobering reminder that trials and testing will come our way as Christians. We should expect it. We should expect difficulty. As hard as that is, we should expect trials. We should expect a bumpy ride in the here and now in this life because our allegiance isn't aligned with the God of this world. Our allegiance is aligned with the God whose kingdom is not of this world. Which has implications then for our evangelism. Because if trials and testing and suffering are expected for Christians until Christ returns, then we ought to be transparent about that when we share the gospel. I'm convinced, in fact, that that the selling of the gospel as a way just to make our life easy and better now, right now on this earth, is only setting up people to be scorched when the sun of suffering rises and they have no root. The old evangelism slogan, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, is misleading unless we are clear that the wonderful plan will include suffering on the way to glory when Jesus returns and establishes the fulfillment of his kingdom. As one famous pastor said, the only way we have our best life now is if we're headed to hell. Because for the true Christian, the best life is always to come, and the road in the here and now is often marked by suffering. Commentator Philip Ryken writes, the problem for those among the rocks is not enthusiasm. There is real excitement in coming to Christ because it changes our whole perspective on everything. Furthermore, the gospel demands an emotional response. It brings feelings of deep, true joy. But those feelings alone are not sufficient. 
What we need is a firm grasp on the realities of Christ's saving work, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. The only faith that endures is one that is based on who Jesus is and what he has done, not based on how we happen to feel. And so the caution then is this, that we examine our roots that we dig deep into the nutrient-rich soil of Scripture and that our expectations about what this Christian life will bring are realistic and are informed by what the Bible says, not by what we wish to be. Like, yes, there is peace here and now for the Christian. Like, there is a peace that surpasses human understanding. There is a peace in the midst of trial and storm. There is a deep-seated joy that that the world does not understand and that the world cannot take away. And there is an eternity of bliss promised for those who are in Christ. But we are called in the here and now to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, and the cross always comes before the crown. And Jesus himself said in John 15, 20 and 21, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In fact, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So there is a very real caution here of easy believism. Third, there's a caution here against idolatry. A caution against idolatry. Look at verse 7. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Interpretation of verse 14 from Jesus. And as for those what fell, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As I mentioned last week, Paul David Tripp has famously written, A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing. When it becomes a ruling thing. A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And this is the caution for those here among the weeds. And I think the point is that persecution is not the only form of testing. Affluence is its own form of testing as well. As my friend Drew pointed out this week, isn't it interesting that Jesus calls riches and the pleasures of life weeds? You see, those here in the weeds don't likely have any objections to doctrines of the Bible. They likely give full support to the gospel and the teachings of Scripture. If you asked them, they would say, of course I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sin. You see, the problem isn't fundamentally doctrinal. It's desire. They have allowed the things of this world to slowly take prominence in their desires. After all, Jesus in Luke 12, 22 calls his followers not to be concerned with the worries of life. In Luke 16, 13, he challenges his followers that we cannot love both God and money. 
There is a single-minded devotion to Christ above everything else that ought to mark every single believer in Christ. And tragically, the examples of choked-out seeds are all over the Bible. Consider Esau, for example, who sold his birthright for a cup of soup. Genesis 25. Or Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, whose love for this world caused him to leave the mission field. And the same thing, friends, can happen to us. Like the people in the parable, we can hear the word of God, but we can become so preoccupied with the cares of life, or we can become distracted by the endless opportunities that we have for immediate gratification, or the incessant buzz of entertainment and pleasure, or we turn on the TV instead of opening our Bibles, or we get on social media instead of having meaningful spiritual conversations with friends. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but they don't have to be wrong to get in the way of spiritual growth. And if we bear any fruit at all, it doesn't mature. Now it's, it's debated whether those among the thorns are true believers or not. In one sense, it would appear that they are. They seem to bear some fruit, even though their fruit does not mature. In verse 7, they grow along with the, the weeds, but at least they grow. They go on their way, as those who hear and seem to walk in the way. On the other hand, they may not be true believers, since in verse 15, Jesus says that fruit bearing with patience is a mark of good soil. So it's not exactly clear if those among the thorns or the weeds here are immature Christians who are Christians who just fail to mature or if they're just moral men and women who are unsaved although they acknowledge that there's some truthfulness to the gospel. But either way, Jesus' point here doesn't seem to be to tell us exactly who's in and who's out. Let me just say that again. I think the purpose of this parable is not to clarify for us exactly who's in and who's out. I think Jesus' point is to give us clarity on the way that the seed of the gospel works and to caution his followers so that we may be like the fourth soil. I think this is important because if we were honest with ourselves, if we just stop for a moment and think about the course of our own week or the last month or the last few years of life, I think we would probably, most of us, admit that we have all three of these tendencies in our own heart. I know I do. This week was incredibly convicting because I know that there are so many times when I know what God's Word says, I hear what God's Word says, but I don't like it. Well, I don't want to align my life to that. I don't want to live out that truth. And I can be like the hard-packed soil of the path in the field. And there are also times when I am like the rocky soil and I'm committed to Christ and I'm excited about the cause of Christ and I'm excited about finding joy in the Lord and being faithful to Christ and finding my identity in Him until a dry season. 
until trials come. Until I'm no longer at church camp or on the seminary campus and people are beginning to poke holes or ask questions or dig or push back or push away from me because of faith. Or ridicule. Or say ugly things online. And my faith in those moments I've found has grown silent. My faith has shriveled a bit. And most common of all, I know what it's like, and probably you do too, to live among the weeds. In fact, there is in my own soul, and maybe in yours, almost a constant need to identify and pull up by the roots those things that are good things, but those things that quickly become more important than Christ. They eclipse our love for Jesus Christ. Man, how easy that is. Whether they are hobbies or goals for the future or busyness or ministry or other good things. They are the pleasures of life that become our identity, our source of security, that occupy most of our thought life and our goals and our dreams and our love. And I know that in those moments, probably some fruit has not matured as it should. That's where I live, and maybe that's where you live too, which is why we all need the caution and the call to this fourth kind of soil. A call to hear and hold and bear fruit. Look at verse 8. Some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I don't know a lot about farming or what's common for farmers to yield today. My grandfather was a farmer. I wish I would have asked him. But I know in the first century, historians tell us that it was a good yield for a farmer in the first century was 25 to 35 fold. And yet if you notice here in verse 8, Jesus says that the good soil produces a harvest of a hundred fold, which is clearly a miracle. It is clearly not the work of the sower. It's clearly not the work of the soil. It's clearly a miracle of God that this soil takes root and produces a harvest of a hundred It's the power of God, which I think is the point here. A good soil here or a good heart is not so hardened by Satan that Satan can snatch away the seed of the word. It's not so shallow that it withers in the heat of persecution. It's not so distracted that it gets choked off by life's troubles and pleasures. Instead, it stays rooted in the word of God. And as a result, God works powerfully to produce a miraculous harvest. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scornful, right? but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The righteous man or woman of God 
who delights in the word of God, who hears it, who holds it fast in an honest and good heart, and through whom God produces fruit. The hearing the word and the requires holding it fast, which leads to bearing fruit. And these words imply that the Christian life is not just a one-time joyous reception of the word. Rather, the Christian life is a sustained hearing and holding and bearing fruit with patience. Let me clarify. It is not a perfect hearing and holding and bearing fruit with patience but it is a faithful, sustained hearing and holding and bearing fruit with patience. Notice how Jesus describes this kind of heart. It's a heart that holds on to God's word, reading it, believing what it says about sin and salvation and the glory of God and living in obedience to its commands. This heart is also an honest heart, one that is sincere in its desire to grow. It's a good heart that's been made good by the grace of God. It's a patient heart that perseveres through life's trials without giving up. It's like a heart planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. I want to close this morning with three specific takeaways. And I know that Oftentimes, as I close, are code words for close your Bible, close your notes, and gather your things we're about to leave. Let me challenge you just to continue to maybe some, take some notes here as the Lord stirs in your own heart. Three specific takeaways. First, patiently, faithfully endure. Patiently, faithfully endure. The late R.C. Sproul wrote, no farmer has ever produced a huge crop impatiently. No farmer can ever just throw the seed in the ground and expect fruit to be there in abundance that same afternoon. No, he writes, it's easy to grow weeds. But if you want a good crop, that can only come through careful preparation, careful cultivation, and then through patient waiting. So I think the challenge is that we not put our confidence in an experience back then, but that we continue to trust and depend on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Which is why we need the gospel every day, why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Like we want, when we read a passage like this, to know so badly, okay, which of these are saved and which of these are not. But I think the main point is this. If you have ears to hear, then listen. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone and in his righteousness? Or are you looking to other things for your justification? Are you putting your faith and hope in the finished work of Jesus today? As one of the staff pastors said, are we putting all of our eggs in this basket alone today? Day by day, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the point of the parable. And here's the reality. This is the good news of the gospel. You will fail at times doing that. You will not be perfect because you are not the son of God. 
you will not and I will not trust in the finished work of Christ like we should. But this is precisely when we are reminded of the gospel. We are reminded that the person that we trust in is the same person who is holding on to us. The same one who has forgiven and redeemed and sealed us. And we are reminded that his grace... His grace in the gospel is what sustains us, not our obedience to him. And that is a really good place to rest. Second takeaway this morning is that we should scatter the seed. Scatter the seed. God requires only that the seed be scattered widely. Our job is to scatter the seed. It's to sow the word of God. Knowing that not all of our teaching, not all of our preaching, not all of our evangelism will produce a response in everyone. God's word will meet with adversity and opposition. We can't predict what type of soil will respond. We can't predict where people are. We can't prefer to only sow the seed in one kind of soil. Right? Like, I'm only looking for the good soil. What does that look like? Because if you look through the Bible, oftentimes those that would seem to be the good soil are the ones who don't respond, and the ones that seem like they're the bad soil are the ones who do respond. Which is why our evangelism, our sharing of the gospel, our our spiritual gospel-centered, Bible-centered conversations with friends and coworkers and neighbors needs to be to all kinds of people in all kinds of conditions. I have a sister in Christ here at the church who goes to prisons and shares the gospel with women inmates in these prisons. Probably most of us would think, that's hard soil right there. And yet remarkably, God causes the seed, in some, not all, to sink into the ground and to produce a crop and to yield a harvest. Remarkable. We are called to scatter the seed, friends. A third takeaway. And this may be merely autobiographical, I don't know, but we are called to genuinely celebrate professions of faith. Genuinely celebrate professions of faith. I was tempted to write genuinely celebrate conversion, but we don't always know, right? What we see on the outside is professions of faith. And if we know that not everyone who hears the gospel will receive it well, and if we know that some who profess faith won't last, and if we know that some who start well will slowly fade, then there is an incredible temptation for us to slowly become cynical. To slowly begin to approach the conversion or the profession of a friend or a coworker, kind of with arms crossed, like, oh, Well, that's nice. We'll see. Time will tell. But is this the reaction in heaven when a sinner repents? No. What's the reaction when a sinner repents? What's the reaction in heaven? Luke 15 tells us, verse 10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy. Before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
that's the reaction in heaven. Joy. You might think, well, yeah, but that's the reaction in heaven, and in heaven they, they know if the response is genuine or if it's not. You might be right, but it seems to me that our response ought always to be joy precisely because we don't know someone's heart. And any movement towards the gospel, any movement towards Jesus Christ in anyone's life ought to stir us to joy just as it ought to motivate us to pray for them that it would be genuine and to disciple them that it might be genuine to help them grow and to love them and to be the church. This is our call as the people of God because this is my story. This is your story, the story of those who heard the word of God. The seed was sowed by a fourth grade Sunday school teacher or by a missionary or by someone who opened a Bible with you or by a coworker, or by a classmate or by a parent. And the word, the seed of the word of God took root, not through your own work, but by the grace of God. And those around you helped and they prayed And they discipled and they loved and they taught and they counseled. And they laughed with and cried with. Because it takes a church to foster and mature and disciple and encourage and help a Christian. And this is what we exist for. Because it's our story. It's my story. It's your story. And we are still in process of being conformed into the image of Christ until he returns. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.